Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Four years after Hurricane Katrina, the debate continues about how best to prepare for another major storm in the Gulf. Some say the present levee system promises more than it can truly deliver. There are 350 miles of protective structures around New Orleans. It's a virtual impossibility to ensure that all 350 miles of that system are going to be fully functional 100% of the time. Also, the hunt for healthy food in the inner city. People would say to me, I really want to make these changes. I want to switch to 1% milk. I want to eat more fruits and vegetables. I want to be healthier, but I can't. My bodega only sells junk food, and there aren't any supermarkets, so what am I supposed to do? Eating in the city and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On August 28, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the south coast of the United States. The results have been devastating and long-lasting. Four years later, as this year's hurricane season picks up, much of the Gulf region still faces dire threats from flooding should another storm strike. Shortly after Katrina, Ivor von Heerden, the deputy director of the Louisiana State University Hurricane Center, was among those who urged authorities to rethink the levee system. He suggested that the size of the protected areas should be scaled back, but the levees should be made stronger where they protect core areas, including downtown New Orleans. If you look at coastal Louisiana and, and imagine you spread your fingers of your hand in front of you, our levee systems kind of run along the outside of your fingers. And between each finger you have a V and that's basically a funnel that the surge can funnel up when we get a big storm. So really what we need to do in terms of that finger is to is to cut it off at the knuckles and have one line levees. Uh, it's much shorter in the long run but it runs across the central part of the coastal zone. Those areas that are outside you have to compensate the people and give them locations inside the protected system. How many people right now live outside the protected uh, system you're talking about? It probably amounts to maybe 100,000 at the most. The bottom line in all of this is, as you plan, is it has to be a case of not what's good for me, but what's good for the most folk, what's good for everybody. What makes the best sense for the overall population in coastal Louisiana? At the time, Ivor von Heerden's ideas were viewed with a lot of skepticism. But recently, the National Academy of Sciences reviewed thousands of pages of recommendations and records compiled by a task force led by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and came to conclusions surprisingly similar to those of von Heerden. The Interagency Task Force, known by its acronym, IPET, also found fault with some of the Army Corps' engineering practices. University of North Carolina professor David Moreau was part of the National Academy Review. The report is uh, remarkably candid in several places, particularly candid in terms of its assessment 
of the failure along the 17th Street Canal, which led to the flooding of a major portion of the central city. So there's nothing being uh, papered over there. Whether it's this report or the general information about what happened during Katrina, there will be a very significant change in the design of protective facilities. There will be a substantial change in how the risk is communicated. The committee recommended that, in fact, the IPET staff actually hire a firm that specializes in in communicating with the public to take the findings and uh, translate those into common everyday language. People were told that this system was built to a 100-year flood, perhaps a 200-year flood uh, protection, and yet there was this failure. What do we need to change about our thinking of risk assessment when it comes to flood protection? Uh, The 100-year return period is an average return period, but there's a very substantial likelihood that during a 30-year mortgage that uh, if you, in fact, knew exactly what the likelihood was, it would be around uh, 25 27%. So wait a second. If I were told that uh, over the life of, say, owning a house, I'd have a 27% chance of getting flooded out, uh, that doesn't seem like acceptable odds. It's not. For a place like New Orleans, it's totally unacceptable. The real message is if you live in areas that are below sea level, you're at risk, and you should exercise caution, uh, should be prepared for failures if they occur. Now, some have suggested that uh, the southern part of Louisiana is simply too difficult to protect, that some place south of New Orleans, but north of of the far reaches of the state, permanent settlements just really should not be allowed. Based on what you see in this report, how practical is that suggestion? Well, the The suggestion is impractical uh, if you put it in terms of prohibition. What you could do and should do, in my opinion, is uh, to avoid building facilities that give people a false sense of security. That uh, we're talking here, and the report addresses the fact that there are 350 miles of protective structures around New Orleans. I'm not sure the language that we use, but it's, uh, I'll say it's a virtual impossibility to ensure that all 350 miles of that system are going to be fully functional 100% of the time. Well, at this point, we know that the cost of the Katrina floods is someplace north of, I believe, $80 billion. Right. For $80 billion bucks, do you think we could protect uh, New Orleans? For $80 billion bucks, you could uh, do a lot of other things that uh, might be a lot more beneficial than rebuilding levees or making them higher. You might be able to relocate people. You might be able to create uh, jobs in areas that are substantially at less risk. It requires uh, some additional analysis that has not yet uh, been publicly released. Professor David Moreau, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve.
Shipping containers are those big steel boxes you find at ports, rail yards, and loaded onto trucks. And usually they're used just for that, shipping. But as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, some entrepreneurs are transforming containers into home sweet home. Forklifts move exhibits into place at the EcoBuild America show in Orange County, California. David Cross of SG Block stands at his exhibit, a steel box with one half converted into a living space. What we're looking at here is a 40-foot cargo container, eight feet wide, it's nine and a half feet tall, and it's 40 feet long. One side of the container has been removed, and window and door openings have been cut into the sides and ends. As you see it, a tremendous amount of material has been removed from it. It's been augmented, so now it's a structural steel building system that formerly was a cargo container. Cross says buildings made this way can withstand 175 mile per hour winds, and the containers or blocks can be stacked, cut, and integrated by an architect into various styles. In fact, in several buildings SG Blocks has helped build, it's hard to discern the containers within. We're the bones of it, but what the exterior and the interior looks like is, is up to the architect and their clients. What's funny these days, it seems to be a trend towards exposing the shipping container and utilizing that as an industrial look. That's Bill Hinchliffe of Con Global Industries, his company partners with SG Blocks. Typically, how a project works is a homeowner or developer hears about the shipping containers and then puts SG Blocks in contact with their architect for the design. Con Global does the welding and custom cutting. The contractor on site pours a foundation, then the customized containers are delivered and welded via plates to the foundation wall. This way, the bones of most buildings can be stacked in a day, making way for electricians, plumbers, and drywall trades. The finished product isn't always cheaper, but can be faster and stronger than a frame building, and Cross says the treated steel would hold up being underwater for several weeks, as many homes were after Hurricane Katrina. Yes, you'd still have to take off your drywall and address that, but fundamentally, your framing system behind the package is still sound. There's also the reuse aspect. The pieces removed from the box are melted down for new steel, so all aspects of the container get a new life. Cross says he's been getting a lot of calls. This is um, the old buddy guy musician. This is an overnight success 20 years in the making. SG Blocks isn't the only company to consider shipping containers for homes. There's a development called Container City in the UK, and designer Jennifer Siegel, who specializes in sustainable prefabricated buildings, created a container house in Los Angeles. That also led to interest from around the country, but Siegel hit some resistance talking to local officials. Most building departments around the country are not ready to accept the shipping container as a form or as a building element as of yet. Still, she believes containers hold promise as long as people use them creatively, cutting windows, stacking them, putting on different finishes. Then, yes, I think that there's an incredible demand for low to moderate income housing, office space, all kinds of ways in which the containers can be sewn into the fabric of the city. Or wherever building speed, wind resistance, and the desire to reuse are priorities. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Anaheim, California. To see photos of homes and buildings made with shipping containers, visit our website, LOE.org.
Just ahead, veggie power to the people, improving access to healthy food in inner cities. But first, this note on emerging science from Jesse Martin. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Even honeybees have to earn their keep as they flit from one meal to the next. Flowers provide them with nectar, and in exchange, the bees spread pollen from one plant to another. Now, new research shows that honeybees do even more to earn their lunch than previously thought. According to scientists from the University of Würzburg, honeybees act as plant bodyguards by scaring away caterpillars that would otherwise munch on the plant's leaves. Honeybees aren't actually dangerous to caterpillars, but wasps are. And the caterpillars, using fine hairs on their bodies to detect flying insects, can't tell the difference. So they keep away from areas with large honeybee populations. In fact, in lab experiments, the scientists found that when honeybees are around, caterpillars do 60 to 70 percent less damage to plant leaves. The researchers hope their discovery will soon be applied to sustainable farming practices. If crops and flowers are grown side by side in the same field, then honeybees attracted to the flowers will become crop protectors, allowing farmers to use fewer chemical pesticides. And that's an idea that's worth some buzz. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jesse Martin. Coming up, a corny look at seed art. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Agriculture is responsible for about a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, more than the transportation sector. About half of those emissions come directly from crop and livestock production, and much of the rest from land clearing and degradation for food production. Sarah Shear is an economist and head of Eco-Agriculture Partners. She wrote an article about agriculture and climate change in this year's State of the World book by the World Watch Institute. Ms. Shear says changing the way we farm could be one of the least painful and most effective ways of cutting emissions. One of the most interesting tidbits of knowledge that I learned in the past year is that if you take a cow and a calf in beef production in one of our intensive feedlot systems here in the U.S., that that pair of animals actually emits more in a year than a mid-sized car in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So you could either drive an electric car or quit eating meat. Is that what you're telling me? Well, quit eating meat or make sure that you eat meat from a kind of a sustainable livestock production system. How could uh, one make a sustainable meat production that wouldn't add to climate change? Well, so much of the world's annual crop production is used to feed cattle. And a lot of that could be substituted for by returning to having animals instead graze on pasture. And if you have perennial pastures, long-lived grasses, you can actually produce a very high levels of meat and dairy production without having to depend upon the use of, of a lot of grain. Apart from what they eat, um, one of the big problems for, for livestock is actually the gases that they produce in their stomach and the manure and wastes that they produce because those are very full of a particularly powerful greenhouse gas called methane. So there's a number of approaches that are being used to try to reduce those. One of them is to try to use the manure in clever ways by actually using the manures and the other wastes from livestock as a source of biogas. So we have a lot of really just, you know, thousands and thousands of, of farms around the world heating their buildings with the waste that came out of their, their livestock production. How does tilling the soil increase CO2 emissions? And 
What is no-till agriculture anyway? Well, if you look at um, all the different places that carbon is stored in the world, it turns out that the third most important sink is actually the world's soils. And the process of conventional agricultural tillage, where you take a plow or other implements and turn the soil around at the beginning of the cropping season, actually, every time you do that, you release a large amount of carbon from the soils. So one of the things that's been developed in modern agricultural systems over the last couple of decades is something that's called minimum tillage or even no-till systems that really try to not turn the soil around very much. They manage soil quality and they manage the weed problem through other kinds of methods that don't require turning that soil around. How does no-till agriculture affect crop production? I mean, we've got more and more people coming into the world. Obviously, that means more and more mouths to feed. The way that we farm, uh, we do this, right, because we want bigger and better harvests. How can we do that with with no-till agriculture? Well, I think this is the exciting thing about what's going on right now in terms of the reconsideration of how we do agricultural production, because actually a lot of the things that we do that cost money and cause environmental damage actually don't contribute that much to agricultural production. So a lot of the no-till systems and low-till systems, farmers like a great deal because they can produce just as much food with them for a lot less cost. So it's a win for the environment, a win for farmers, and a win for food production. Of course, climate change is not only affected by agriculture, it works the other way around. I mean, climate change is going to have a big effect on agriculture. So how do the techniques that you're talking about help farmers prepare for the warmer temperatures that are coming? One of the advantages of the approaches for mitigating climate, which is to get more organic matter in your soils, is that those kinds of activities actually make the farming system much more resilient. High organic matter soils actually hold water better so that if you start having much more erratic rainfall, they're going to be less susceptible to loss of the harvest. The other thing is you're going to have more diversity within the farming system in terms of different kinds of plants and different kinds of products, and that's going to reduce the risks to farmers of climate that can't be predicted. So how then does the world encourage these agricultural techniques? Most of us think about farmers as producing food which, of course, is the major thing we want them to do. But more and more, we realize that farmers are actually the major stewards of our ecosystems around the world, by far, far more than public protected areas or other kinds of local local lands. Uh, the farmers are the stewards, and we need to be thinking about them and their role, not only as producers of food, but also as producers of ecosystem services. So I think we need to be rethinking everything from our public subsidies and what do we subsidize farmers to do. And increasingly, we need to subsidize them, not for producing food we don't want, but for producing the ecosystem services that we need. Sarah Shear is president and CEO of Eco Agriculture Partners, one of the organizations that contributed to this year's State of the World study by the World Watch Institute. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Rural farmers are not the only ones with dirt under their fingernails and an abundance of zucchini this year. Some inner-city communities are also reaping the benefits of a late-summer harvest, showing that they, too, can have access to fresh, organic food. In these tough times, this is especially important. Government figures show that some 36 million people live in households that have trouble just putting food on the table. 
Living on Earth's Jessica Elise Smith tells us about efforts in New York City to bring high-quality foods to struggling neighborhoods. It's Saturday morning at the Samaline Grocery in Brooklyn. Cesar Rodriguez tends to his customers. Soda, cookies, chips, and canned foods line the walls of Rodriguez's bodega. But among the sea of processed foods and packaged goods stands a small outpost of fresh fruits and green leafy vegetables. Piña, mango, manzana. Rodriguez recently added these fresh foods to his store. He's one of almost 1,000 bodega owners taking part in New York City's Healthy Bodegas Initiative. Through the program, we're trying to improve people's health and the health of the neighborhood, have people eat healthier products and lose weight, because obesity is a sickness here in our community. Low-income neighborhoods like Rodriguez's have few supermarkets or other options for fresh fruits and vegetables. Yet there are many places to buy fast food, candy, and alcohol. Sabrina Berenberg of the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene wanted to find ways to address the many health problems like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease found in poorer areas. She found that 80% of the food markets in these neighborhoods were small corner stores. These areas um, have many more bodegas than supermarkets, and very few supermarkets, in fact. That really inspired me to to work to make these large environmental changes to make it easier for people to eat healthier. So in 2006, Berenberg began to work with bodega owners and kicked off the Healthy Bodegas Initiative. She saw that residents wanted to change what they ate but needed help. Nobody wants to live a life of chronic disease, so the people would say to me, I really want to make these changes, I want to switch to 1% milk, I want to eat more fruits and vegetables, I want to be healthier, but I can't. My bodega only sells junk food and there aren't any supermarkets, so what am I supposed to do? And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than that. New York City's neighborhoods are not the only areas with limited access to healthy food. These so-called food deserts are found across the country in rural and urban locations. Mark Winnie has looked at food deserts for years. It's relative based on how far somebody has to go in order to get to any kind of decent, affordable food store and the means they have to use to get there. And do they, in fact, have the means? Winnie is the author of Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty. In the book, he chronicles the rise of food deserts in the 1960s alongside the growth of the American suburb. With scores of people leaving downtown areas, inner cities were drained of wealth. Supermarket chains followed the wealthier client base and moved to the suburbs. They simply began to walk away from urban America. And these were communities that needed those stores more than others. Uh, They were communities that were being challenged by poverty, being challenged by some of the worst socioeconomic conditions that we've had in in the, perhaps in the 20th century. It wasn't just the lack of supermarkets that led to the growth of food deserts, but also the lack of public transportation to bring urban residents to suburban grocery stores. Winnie says nearly 70% of households in low-income neighborhoods do not own a car. As an example, he highlights the 8th Ward of Washington, D.C., which is close to the U.S. Capitol building. In this area, nearly 70,000 residents live with slim access to grocery stores. About 38% of those people are considered poor uh, using U.S. poverty standards. If you look at the landscape, we see almost no supermarkets. And we also see another characteristic of a food desert, which is a tremendous number of fast food joints. And 
that's what people have to choose from for food. And as a result, we see uh, very high levels of obesity. Costs from obesity and related chronic diseases are increasing. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the U.S. spends over $117 billion a year on health care related to obesity. And in low-income neighborhoods with lots of fast food and few healthy options, the obesity rate is rising. Over in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn, Eugene rakes leaves that he'll add to one of the compost piles lining the side of an urban farm. Here we have our compost beds over here that um, we've been processing for a long time. Um, we have one that was built two months ago, and it's almost done, but it's not, part, it's not all the way done. It's almost broken itself down. All the nutrients and stuff like that is almost broken down and created our soil that we use. Eugene is one of about 10 neighborhood teens who work at the Red Hook Community Farm. The farm, run by the nonprofit group Added Value, was literally built from the ground up. Soil was brought in to cover an old abandoned ball field. If you look closely on the outskirts of the rows of onions, lettuce, and beets, you can still see home plate and the faint white lines that mark the field's boundaries. This farm has not only increased the community's access to fresh and affordable fruits and vegetables, but also has helped change the neighborhood. For the farm, i say it was like pretty much a little better because there was still a lot of gang violence and stuff like that going around here. I'm just basically proud of being here and helping out and then being able to bring healthy food to my, my neighborhood that I live in. Eugene and other teens plant seeds, harvest crops, and sell their bounty at a farmer's market in the neighborhood. Before the farm started, residents went through a lot to get fresh food. I took two buses or a car service to get food back to Red Hook. Like, you couldn't even get a quart of milk or vegetables. Kate and many other Red Hook residents who buy their produce from the farm understand that fresh fruit and vegetables are important for their health. William Lewis is a longtime resident who didn't like what he found in the neighborhood before the farm. Well, it was dull. Well, nothing buy, not fresh anyway, you know, just regular stores, you know. Since when the farm came, I just stopped coming here because I know it's fresh food, and I like fresh. It's better for me, better for anybody, matter of fact, you know. The farmer's market has become a neighborhood gathering place, and teens at the farm not only earn money and learn how to grow food, they also learn how to be stewards of their community, a community that is focusing on changing the circumstances of its health. Efforts like this inspire author Mark Winnie. So it's the human innovation, creativity, a willingness as a community in some sort of organized social way and political way of trying to change the circumstances that they live in. And that really inspires me. Programs like the Added Value Farm and the Healthy Bodegas Initiative operate from the ground up to improve the health of people living in food deserts. They also help to close what Winnie calls the food gap that severely divides Americans. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith in New York City. Our land, our home ground, is soil. And soil, that humble, vital basis of all the greenery we depend on, is the subject of this excerpt from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. Nature writer Barry Lopez and fellow author Deborah Guartney gathered lyrical descriptions of landscape features in this book. Today, Barry Lopez explains soil. Soil. 
Erosion, volcanic eruption, earthquakes, floods, tectonic grinding, landslides, and other natural forces act continuously on the Earth's crustal rock, creating various types of debris, gravel deposits, mud flats in the tidal estuaries of creeks, cobble terraces, and beaches of black lava sand. When chemical agents, such as phosphorus and nitrogen, infuse this debris, and biological entities, including microbes and earthworms, work material into it organic enough to support plants, it becomes soil. A soil that is chemically or organically exhausted, that's been pulverized or become deeply parched, that has been invaded by decomposing rock, or that's been fouled by sewage or industrial pollution to the point where it no longer can support plant life, is called dirt. That's writer Barry Lopez, who together with Deborah Gwartney created Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. In this season of harvest, all that bounty is on display at state fairs across the country, from jams and pies to enormous squash and pumpkins and prize-winning tomatoes. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom attended the Minnesota Harvest Celebration in St. Paul last year and encountered an unusual art display. She has this audio postcard. My name is Beth Russell. I am from western Minnesota. All of the artwork that you see on the wall is done with seeds from Minnesota farm crops. It has to be grown here. Therefore, white rice doesn't work. So we use wheat and barley and oats, corn, different varieties of corn. We might have some that looks more yellow, some that's more red. Some of our lentils are green, some are orange. So there's all kinds of colors in the seed. We have beans, kidney beans, lima beans, soybeans. The founding mother of crop art for Minnesota, I'm giving her that title. She's called the Seed Queen. She has done Johnny Carson, Eleanor Roosevelt. And and if you look at Eleanor Roosevelt in the seed art that Lily and Colton did, Eleanor's teeth are beans. They're great northern beans, which is just phenomenal to me. A typical seed art piece will have somewhere between 8 to 10 to 12 different kinds of seeds. We ask each one of our artists to come in with what we call a seed chart um, that tells us the name of the seed and shows us what it is. It's um, a very important part of the display. One of our categories is wearable art. So I have corn on a, a chain dangling from my ears. It's a little zany, a bit of funkiness. A young man last year called me corn ears. It was very appropriate. It's rather distinctive, actually. I get a lot of comments on it. I think it's crappie. <laughs> I think it looks crappie <laughs> to go with farm crops. Bobby Bascom sent us that audio postcard from last year's Minnesota State Fair. This year's event is right around the corner, running from August 27th to Labor Day.
Just ahead, searching for the quiet places of nature in our noisy world. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Gordon Hempton has dedicated his life to listening. As an acoustic ecologist, Mr. Hempton has captured audio landscapes on every continent except Antarctica, crisscrossing some of the most unbeaten paths on the globe with his recording equipment. He joined me from Seattle to talk about his book, the result of his 10,000-mile trans-American quest. The title is One Square Inch of Silence, One Man's Search for Natural Silence in a Noisy World. I asked him to describe this place, this one square inch of silence. Olympic National Park is truly the listener's Yosemite. It's often called three parks in one because there are three areas that in another park would justify its entire existence. We have glacier-capped mountains, we have the temperate rainforest, and we have a wilderness seashore. Now, this is a World Heritage Site and also Biosphere Reserve. It's a wonderful place simply to be and to listen to the widest diversity of sounds of any national park in the 390 units that the National Park Service manages. But even more important to my ears is the fact that Olympic National Park has the longest duration of natural quiet in any other national park. Tell me exactly where is this one square inch of silence? One square inch of silence is 3.2 miles up the whole River Trail, a trail that's lined with the world's tallest living creatures, moss-covered dug fir, western hemlock, western red cedar, Sitka spruce. On a moss-covered log, I placed a stone given to me by the Quileute elder, David Fourlines. And at this stone, I promise to defend from all noise intrusions. And by defending this simple one square inch of silence, I'm able to manage the thousand square miles around it, which is roughly the size of Olympic National Park. And the way that that works for a moment, because people say to themselves, well, how does that work? Well, just like noise can impact quiet, Quiet can also impact noise. So imagine a jet overhead, and this is very much true, that a jet overhead, even at 38,000 feet cruising altitude, is literally destroying a 1,000 square miles of oral solitude below it. Well, if you can maintain a single point, absolutely 100% free of all human-caused noise intrusions, then in effect what that does is manage the noise impacts for a thousand square miles around it. We have some of your sound from this place. Uh, let's play it right now. Well, actually, uh, this is a pretty busy place, Gordon. Oh, it can be. That's definitely a springtime recording. It's busy. A lot of wildlife. We're hearing a varied thrush there, a Pacific chorus frog, 
they're as busy communicating as we are. They have more important things to say, I think, than we have to say when we're in a wilderness area. Our job is basically to listen. The frogs, the varied thrush, the winter wren, all these creatures are busy establishing their territories, hoping to find an additional mate. And, you know, that brings up another question, too, because not only does noise from outside sources impact our park experience, but it also impacts wildlife. Why do ecosystems need to be free of human noise? Steve, I think the whole earth is speaking. I hear it speaking. And so to ask me which ecosystem deserves to be heard, I think they all deserve to be heard. They all have something to say. Imagine this. All higher vertebrate species have the ability to hear, although not all species have the ability to see. Hearing is vital for survival. And we don't have earlids, do we? In fact, no creature has earlids, although we seem to have plenty of eyelids. It's not only important that we hear, but it's important that we listen. And I don't think that we're an exception to the animal kingdom. So if I would say, what are my big, you know, hit list or first go, first see, first listen to the ecosystems? Well, I would just jump right into the Amazon because the Earth is a solar-powered jukebox. The more sun that hits the surface of the Earth, basically, the louder it is. The Amazon, you know, that natural silence, per se, is really ripping. It's that conversational voice. It is so ever-changing that you can identify the correct time of day just off of the sound alone within five minutes. And then jump up Central America. I like Belize particularly, and jump up further. It's the songbirds of the southeast in in Georgia. Of course, we're in an economically developed country now, the United States, and with all that fossil fuel consumption, the solar-powered jukebox is getting a little refigured because of all the transportation of, of this solar power. And then jump up to the Canadian border here in eastern Washington, also western Washington, and there's a poetics of space that is just really remarkable because... When you make a quiet recording, like the recording of coyotes singing, is this a recording of coyotes or is this a recording of silence made audible by coyotes? Listen closely, Steve, because there's not one coyote, but there are two. And they're singing to each other after a long season of prosperity. And to me, it sounds like a celebration. But the point that I think that they really bring out is that if there were the slightest jet rumbling in the background, the experience of these coyotes would be entirely different. Another recording that I think will just really floor you, just like it floored me. I heard this, I read through in John Muir's journals, he describes snow melting into music. 
So when you hear somebody say that or you read it yourself, you go, oh, well, what a poetic license. Isn't that great? But little might we guess unless we actually do listen. That's the Olympic marmot, by the way. That's an endangered species. It's an endemic just there at Olympic National Park. this point you don't know how hard it was for me not to just like stand up wreck that recording because i just had to dance i mean yes john murr thank you well i didn't know my nature was a jazz musician oh yeah sure is are you a player yourself (laughs) nothing you'd want to have on the air (laughs) okay and of course people know john muir as the naturalist who who was the founder of the sierra club and and inspired much of what we have in the way of national parks. And I gather you actually went to the place in Montgomery, Tennessee, where Muir had his own epiphany about the environment. So tell me, Gordon, why was this one creek in Tennessee so important for you to visit? And and, and what was it that you found there? Sure. Well, the creek of Montgomery Creek in Tennessee was, you know, a shrine that I would like to go to. In fact, I had thought about it for 15 years and never had the opportunity because it's the first place that Muir describes the sound of a mountain stream and calls it the most eloquent voice in nature. And he goes on, of course, to Yosemite years later, and that is the most frequent sound that he describes in all of his journals is the sound of water mountain streams. And so this is the very first chance that I have to visit that location and think about Muir. So when you get there, who's there? Who do you meet? Well, I find the creek and I meet Randy. Randy's operating this large water truck for the National Coal Plant. And he he sucks up water. There, He says that there's no water, no coal, he says. And so he's sucking up like a thirsty elephant, and then he drives off, but not until he gives me a suggestion on where I might find quiet. If you could read from that, that would be wonderful. At Randy's suggestion, I'm walking Roach's Creek up the valley, imagining I'm in Muir's footsteps. Walking in the stream itself, I'm able to hear his changing voice. No two rocks are the same. No two flows are the same. At every step... A new combination, new notes. In a different time, Muir's time, for instance, I could have lost myself in these subtle variations, but with the distant din of National Coal Corporation, mine number 11 in the background, it's impossible to bend a calm ear. Nothing more eloquent in nature than a mountain stream, Muir wrote in his journal very near to where I'm standing. What would he write today? Gordon, we live in a noisy culture. What's to be done? Well, our culture is noisy. What we can do today, number one, is include quiet in your life. Simply include quiet in your life. Silence cannot be imagined, although a lot of people think so. Most people that are listening to this are recalling a quiet place that they have been in the last year. 
Well, I have to say, listen again. Tell us about an encounter or moment that, that just gave you hope for the future of the sound of nature in America, quiet in America. Every opportunity to hear nature undisturbed by motor noise inspires me, gives me hope. There are two places where that did happen on a 10,000-mile trip, and one in particular was Canyonlands, Canyonlands National Park. And many people may know this either personally or from the writings of Edward Abbey. And it's there at night where you can look at the countless stars and simply be and breathe with the sighing of the wind. It's such a deep and peaceful sleep. And to be able to gaze out at, instead of trees that are hundreds of years old, you're gazing out at a moonlit landscape where the rocks are millions of years old. This is a witness to being a miracle. How can we not gain inspiration? So when I think about how are we going to quiet our culture, well, for one thing, I don't think there's any choice. And the, the immense benefits from this, health for ourselves and also for wildlife, I believe we will. I believe we'll quiet it, beginning with Olympic National Park. Gordon Hampton's book is One Square Inch of Silence. Thank you so much, Gordon. Thank you, Steve. Playing in the mud can be great summertime fun, but for commentator Bethany Erickson, her brother went too far. Last summer, my brother had a thing for mud. What's unusual about this is that my brother is a 41-year-old academic. One minute, he was reading random articles online, and the next, he was transfixed with the dirt in his yard. He'd read that Japanese schoolchildren were going through a craze of making perfect mud balls in playgrounds. These mud balls, called Hikaru Doradango, aren't just balls of wet soil. They're perfectly smooth, dry balls encased in a glossy shell. Supposedly, patiently layering mud, then burnishing it with fine dirt can achieve this, and my brother was determined to find out. Neither of us had ever made a ball of dirt look like a polished marble when we were kids, nor had anyone we knew heard of a Doradango. My brother lives in a tiny forested town with dial-up internet service, but he was intrigued enough to sit for 10 minutes stabbing at pop-up ads just to carefully watch a video of someone stroking a handful of mud. The obsession took hold. He no longer talked about the books he had just read or even the other art he'd created. Instead, he'd enlighten us about the best patches of dirt in a two-mile radius. The old plastic post office mail bin in his living room that had once held poetry manuscripts was now full of what he called the good dirt. His worn tan Carhartts took on a gray tinge, and his hands mechanically formed everything he picked up into a sphere. My brother refused to be outballed by Japanese toddlers. Each stage of his day became carefully metered out into minutes of layering, the half hour of moisture-controlled curing in the fridge, the hour of dusting with fine clay. He stayed up late, patting and rounding. The more involved he got, the more he failed. He invited everyone to join him. We all made excuses. 
We found ways to bring up people we knew who were obsessive-compulsive, and then we'd stare at him pointedly as he cradled a mug of coffee in one dirt-lined hand and a mud ball in the other. Each of his days ended with a glimpse of pride and hope. Several shiny Dorodongo nestled together on a frisbee. Every morning, they were shattered. Finally in the fall, my brother literally washed his hands of the whole affair. Perhaps his lesson was in resolve, or perhaps just rumination. Maybe he could have opened up a meditation retreat where people would pay to walk around slowly all day massaging a mud orb. But instead, he got emotionally involved. And in the end, the mud balls were good for one thing. Throwing. Anyway, my brother is moving forward. Now he's into rocks. Bethany Erickson is a writer and artist from Cambridge, Massachusetts. On the next Living on Earth, the ancient cliff dwellings at Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico are being vandalized. To me, it's like coming into my house and carving your name on my wall. You know, that's how I feel that these are disrespectful. I wouldn't go into anybody's house and carve my name into their wall. Restoring sacred sites next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in desert solitude. Not a plane flies overhead, nor a car drives by this section of Gray Ranch, a 500-square-mile nature conservancy easement in the panhandle of New Mexico. Bernie Krause found his patch of silence at dawn. He recorded coyotes, desert birds, and dry winds for his series, wildsanctuary.com. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sreese Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. With help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, Sammy Souza, and engineering assistance from Dana Chisholm. Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.